actually welcome Jess. Thanks, Wally. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. If you're visiting in here, it's especially, to ha especially good to have you. Thank you so much for coming and checking us out. Um, before Christmas, I was at um, dinner at some friends' house who aren't believers, and um, it was a lovely evening. We're getting on well. It was Saturday night, so it's Saturday night as a pastor. I'm like, my one day of work's happening tomorrow. I need to get to bed early and refresh myself. So uh, it was getting late on to the evening, and I wasn't conscious of time, thinking it's time we need to be going. And then at midnight, my friends asked me, um, so what, who is this Jesus? Why are you a Christian? And I'm thinking, it's great. Like two hours ago, that would have been lovely. But right now, I'm not sure I am a Christian. <laughs> and I realized that in talking to them about why I was a Christian, I said to them, look, the honest reality is, I think, growing up, I wasn't a church person. I never went to church, and I struggled with the idea of God, the idea of this invisible, all-powerful deity that's ever-present and all around us. I think, I said, I found that idea hard, and to some extent, I would put my cards on the table and say, I think I still struggle with that. I mean, I, who can understand how that works? But as a teenager, I heard about Jesus, and... I investigated the life of Jesus. I heard and read some of his teachings. And then I met Jesus. And when I say I met Jesus, I mean I, ha I had an experience whereby I felt like the words on the page and the things that he was saying from the became, became real to me in my heart. And it was as though God himself was speaking to me through this man, Jesus. And I realized in talking to them um, that this is the heartbeat of why I'm a Christian is because of Jesus. It's the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Uh, we are a group of people who are known for our faith and our devotion to Jesus. We are those who follow him and learn from him. This is sounding a little bit boomy to me. Is it boomy to you? No, it's okay. Fine. Um, I'll carry on then. Um, just so we're all okay. I thought I'd just, you know, in case there was an elephant in the room that no one was talking about. This is not an elephant, apparently. It's just, anyway. Uh, I realize that Je Jesus' first disciples, first Christians, they were known by several different names, not all of them positive, but all of them had something to do with Jesus. They were called followers of the way, the way of Jesus' teaching. And they were called disciples, literally students of Jesus. They were called believers, those who put their belief in Jesus and his resurrection. They were called Christians, which was the most insulting term that they had at that time. It was the word means to essentially be a mini Christ. They were called Christians because early followers of Jesus were accused of trying to copy him and just be just like this man. And now, thousands of years on from Jesus' day, we still live in a society where so many of us would say, I'm trying to follow Jesus and I want to be like him. In fact, the world that we live in, in so many respects, gets its orientation from Jesus. One Christian author puts it like this, he says, the quickest and most basic mental health assessment checks to see if people are oriented times three, whether they know who they are, where they are, and what day it is of themselves. He says, I was given the name of Jesus' friend, John. I live in the Bay Area, named for Jesus' uh, friend, Francis, who lives in San Francisco. And I was born in 1957, 1,957 years after Jesus. How could our orientation depend so heavily on one life? That's what he says. The Christian message, the Christian faith is about Jesus. It's, uh, it's, and Christians ought to be known for being devoted to Jesus. 
Christians are often more known for their particular political stance on something or for what they think about some moral issue. Or they're known for all kinds of things in society, being a, a community. The church is a community that cares for people with a lot of very good things. But as Christians, what I want to be known for is for following Jesus and for trusting him. And this term, we're going to be exploring who Jesus is and why it matters to us today. Recently, I was talking to a friend who leads a movement of churches. Uh, several churches relate to him across the world. And he was telling me about the first church that he started, a church in Clarens in South Africa. He's a South African man. He's now living in the UK, like most of the South Africans. And... Um, <laughs> He was a successful businessman before he became a Christian. Uh, he, him and his wife married his childhood sweetheart, and they set their goals. We want to have lots of money. We want to live in a big house. And we want to be successful and comfortable. And they achieved that. And then one day, him and his wife became Christians, and their life got turned upside down because they suddenly realized there was a bigger mission to live for beyond just their own success and comfort. And holidaying in one area, I think, near, near Clarence in South Africa, he met this guy called Japilo who was in charge of this apartment block where he lived, and he felt the Lord telling him to go and speak to Jopilo and, and tell him um, the gospel. And this was a particularly difficult time in South Africa's history. It was just after the apartheid, or apartheid had ended, and he felt, yeah, he felt it was appropriate for him to talk to him. He told his wife, and his wife said, well, if God's saying, you better do it, otherwise there'll be trouble. You've heard of Jonah. So he went and spoke to Jopilo and saw him sitting at the edge of his apartment. And as he approached him, he could see he was wrapped in his blanket and he was looking particularly downcast. He greeted him and asked how he was. And this guy said, I'm, I'm not doing very well. He said, I have this pain in my heart and I'm afraid that I'm going to die and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Can you help? And the guy thought, well, <laughs> that's funny, that's why I'm here. He said, well, Jopilo, I've come today because I want to tell you about a man named Jesus. And he got to talking to him and shared his faith. And the man became a believer in Jesus. My friend went away, came back a year later. And as he arrived, Japilo said, oh, come quickly. They're here waiting for you. And this guy had rounded up his family, his extended family, and the whole village. And they'd come to hear this message about the man, Jesus. My friend shared the good news message with them. Many put their faith in Jesus. And my friend started a church there. On his first Sunday, without any marketing or advertising, they had 500 people just walk from their farms and places around him to come and worship Jesus together. The church then, several years on, reached such a position of influence in the area that the healthcare system was affected, the education system was changed. As a church, they were looking after over 300 HIV sufferers. They went on to plant seven other churches out of this one church. And in fact, when, when the government was changing the names from many of the, the townships and areas in South Africa, they came to this area and said, what's the name of this place? And the locals said, well, they gave the name of the church, which is Dichlebeng. And so the name in South Africa got renamed as Dichlebeng in Clarence as a result of this man starting a church there. And the reason I tell you that story is because when he went to meet Japilo on that first day, he told him about Jesus, and Japilo's response was, I thought Jesus was the God of the white man only. And so never explored him, never looked into him. But Jesus is not just the God of the white man. He's not just the God of the educated or the uneducated. Uh, he's not the God of anybody. Jesus is the, the universal global God who's the centerpiece of all things. And today I want to look at some verses in the Bible to show you that Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. He's what all of the Old Testament was getting ready for. 
And then we're going to finish by watching a video together uh, before we break bread. Now this past week I've also had the privilege of, of sitting and listening to a, a friend of mine who's been planting churches out in the Middle East for the past eight years. He's been in Istanbul starting several churches. And he, ta- he, he spent one of the sessions that I was at basically telling stories for 45 minutes about what God has been doing in the Middle East. It was astonishing. He said that in the past 40 years, more Muslims have become Christians than they have in the entire 1,500-year period of Islam up until now. Quite astonishing in itself. And he would tell stories of how Muslims are having dreams, many of them, in which Jesus is appearing to them. And one story he told me that I thought was just ridiculous. <laughs> so I thought I'd share it here um, so that we can all kind of marvel and have, uh, have our kind of minds blown together. Uh, a friend of his went to uh, one of the stands, I think it's Tajikistan, and went to a village there to go and share the gospel. He approached some man in the village and said, I'd like to tell you about a man, a, a special man who's come into the world. And this guy's re- response was, is it the man who keeps coming to me in my dreams and telling me to write stuff down? And the guy said, I don't know, what, what's he been telling you to write down? And so he went and got where he'd been writing down and brought it to him to see. It was John's gospel. In his dreams, Jesus had been appearing to him and dictating parts of John's gospel for him. And John's gospel begins in chapter 1. It's, it's verses that we often have read at, at Christmas. This is what it says. And this is what the man had written down from his dreams. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it goes on to say that that word became flesh and has now lived among us. The Bible begins with God, in the beginning God, arguably the most controversial verse in the whole of Scripture, and it just starts like that. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And how God creates it is he speaks words, and what he speaks gets created. John, developing on that theme, says those words, that word, the creative forceful power of God has become flesh has now indwelt a human body and he's come to live among us and we've seen him we've touched him we've heard him he's talking about Jesus now let me take a few moments just to journey with you then through parts of the Old Testament and show you how beginning in Genesis 1 with God's creative word and going on from there time and time again the Old Testament points to the centerpiece of all things that is Jesus now, after the creation account in chapter 3, the, the story of the first, uh, the story of the human condition, the story of why it is that we're as bent and broken as we are, appears in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but right at the heart of this chapter, we see the emergence of the promise that Jesus is going to come. This is what it says in Genesis 3. Uh, it should appear behind me. There we go. In verse 9 to 15, we'll read together. So, uh, uh, God. God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden, just watch out for that one because it will cause you problems if you do. And then the serpent comes along and says, well, why don't you try that one and don't trust God, trust me. And so they do, and then this is what happens. Um, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Which wasn't a question of geography. God knew exactly where he was. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man couldn't be bothered to take responsibility and do what God had said. And so said, the man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then a few verses later, after making promises to the man and the woman, it says this in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So sin comes into the world, and as quick as it does, the promise of a deliverer comes. The covering of their shame occurs. There's a promise that one day this woman will give birth to an offspring who will damage, mortally wound, the serpent, the enemy of the human race. And then God, after giving this promise or this curse to the serpent and after making this promise that it's one of the woman's offspring that's going to bring about this rescue, Adam then hears this and says, well, you're called Eve. The word means life giver. You're the one who's going to bring life to the world. And so women ever since Eve have been, uh, have been life givers in the fact that they create children and also are the ones who create life and bring life and hope to the human race and then God kills animals and makes the first covering the first sacrifice takes place to cover their shame right in the early parts of Genesis we see that promise we see that announcement and then in various ways throughout the Old Testament this theme continues in different ways the Old Testament announces Jesus is coming first of all in its messianic promises Going on from Genesis 3, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a wandering nomad called Abraham and blesses him. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In him, because through him and his family will come one who will be a blessing to all people. Then in Genesis, there's, there's lots that we could look at. I'm just pulling out a few. In Genesis chapter 49, in verse 10, Jacob after the story of Joseph with his Technicolor dream coat um, and Andrew Lloyd Webber's songs, Jacob then, uh, once all the overtures and songs are finished, he then makes promises over his children. And he says over Judah, one of his kids, he says, the scepter or the, the royal rule shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That one day, someone from the tribe and line of Judah will receive the obedience and worship and devotion of all the peoples on the planet, it says in Genesis 49. Going on through the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see another promise that starts to emerge. Genesis chapter 18, and in verse 18, there's a promise that another prophet like Moses, who's just led his people out of slavery and has given them commandments to live by, another prophet is going to come. 
It says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever listens to him, and whoever, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. So the promise that a prophet's going to come. Skipping on through the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, in the time of the kings, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah is given a, a promise that she's going to have a child, even though she was previously barren. And this is what it says of that child from that line. The enemies of God shall be broken to pieces. Against him he will thunder to heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That word anointed means Messiah. This is the promise of the Messiah, an anointed one to come. And there's dozens and dozens of messianic promises throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we also see mysterious appearances of a man or a, a man-type figure that is attributed with God-like power and worship. In Genesis 18, Abraham is sitting at a tent and uh, the Lord appears to him. And we're told that three men appear to him. And the men speak to him and the Bible says, and God said to him, translating the words of these or interpreting the words of these men as being the words of God. There's several other appearances of this figure in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. Over 70 times, this figure, the angel of the Lord, that many people say is, a, is an image or an appearance of Jesus before the Christmas story. The angel of the Lord appears 70 times. And in one of them, which is my favorite appearance, and so I'll read it, in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua has been commanded to lead the armies of God into battle against their enemies. So he's feeling a little bit apprehensive about this. He's needing to provoke and stir up his courage. And then he has this vision, this appearance of a man before him. It says this, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. In his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemies? And this is the best reply you could ever get. And he said, no. Oh, that's a good, that's a good reply. Anyway, are you on my side or their side? No. Like, oh, okay. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. So in appearances like that and others in the Old Testament, people, we see these mysterious appearances of, of a man or a figure that people attribute to being a pre-incarnation Christ. So we have messianic promises. We have mysterious appearances. Next, we have prophetic promises, prophecies, statements made of historical events that are going to occur. In the Old Testament, there are 353 predictions of the Messiah coming that Jesus went on to fulfill. Some of them are well known to us. Isaiah 7 verse 11 talks about the virgin shall conceive and give birth. Micah chapter, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, talks about Bethlehem being the place of his appearance. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, it talks about him being, we'll look on the one that they've pierced. He's going to have a pierced side. And then in Isaiah 53, I'll read a couple of verses from Isaiah 53. We, we read of this one and of his sacrifice and what it's going to do for the nations. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In his death, 
that all of our rebellion and turning away from God is going to be placed on him, that his death is going to be vicarious or it's going to atone for. It's going to be something that intercedes for us. And even the nature of his death is, is written as well, hundreds of years before Christ. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was killed between two thieves. And with a rich man in his death, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, although he himself had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So you have the prophecies of God in the Old Testament of announced the coming of Jesus. And then there are the Psalms, the songs, dozens of them, over a dozen of them, describe Jesus' life, describe that he'll be rejected, betrayed, that he'll die, that he'll resurrect, that he'll, he's come to rule the world. And then, in the Old Testament as well, on top of all of these things, we've got messianic promises, mysterious appearances, we've got prophecy, we've got songs, and then we've got typology. That in the Old Testament, there are many types of Christ. You know, we talk about Lionel Messi is a type of footballer, a very good footballer. Or the iPad is a type of tablet. Well, in the Old Testament, you have types of messiahs, types of saviors. Noah's Ark, for example, uh, a boat in which those who are in the inside of it are rescued from the storm outside. Noah's Ark is a type of messiah. It's a type of Christ in that regard. We have Joseph in the book of Genesis. His life is a type of Christ. He was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and yet in his life he brings about the rescue of his people. King David, when he was a little boy, is a type of Christ. He stands before Goliath, and in one of the best trash-talking moments in the Old Testament, David, a little shepherd boy, marches towards this giant, and the giant says to him, do you, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Which is just a brilliant line. Um, nothing to do with being a type of Christ. It's just a very good piece of trash talk. David approaches Goliath, picks up his stones. He, he takes five smooth stones, but he'll need only one. And slings it towards Goliath, hits him, in the, hits him on the forehead, kills him. And then the bit they don't put in the children's Bible, David cuts off Goliath's head and holds it up for the nation to see. David, a weak and vulnerable boy overlooked by his family stands before the enemies of God and wins a victory on their behalf because of David's victory the whole people of God go free he's a type of Christ because Jesus in his death died a death on our behalf then there's the the temple the place where heaven and earth meet the means by which people can approach God is a type of Christ there's the manna that God gives to the Israelites in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. Jesus says, Moses gave you bread from heaven, but gave you ma Moses gave you manna from heaven or in the wilderness, but my Father now gives the true bread, the bread of heaven. To which all the Welsh people start singing, bread of heaven. Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. He's the one that it's all been pointing to and aiming at. He's the one who was and is now and is to come. If we're living for him and being centered on him, having our lives oriented around him is what we have been made for. And nothing that he asks of us is ever too much. C.T. Studd is an Englishman born in 1860. He was born into the aristocracy or was a wealthy family. He attended Cambridge University. He, he played cricket for England in the first match uh, that essentially kick-started the ashes between England and Australia. But when he became a Christian, he gave it all up. 
he inherited a, a lot of money from his family. I think he sold his house to the equivalent, of, a tune to the equivalent of 52 million pounds and gave it all away so that he could give his life to the mission of Jesus. In fact, there were several people around his time of life uh, in history, English men, men and women who did the same. They were called the Cambridge Seven, people who had riches and fortunes and, and wealth and knowledge and became Christians and gave it all up for the sake of the mission. The, the secular press at the time had a field day in talking about these people who are wasting their lives, the best and brightest of England being wasted away. The city star spent himself on the peoples of the world wanting to tell them about this Jesus who is the centerpiece of scripture and the center of his life. In fact, he died on the mission field in Congo in 1931, aged 70. But before he died, he wrote a poem. I'm going to read you several verses or stanzas from that poem and then we're going to watch a video. This is what C.T. Studd wrote. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done, then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be past only what's done for Christ will last only one life a still small voice gently pleads for a better choice bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave only one life twill soon be past only what's done for Christ will last only one life a few brief years e each with its burdens hopes and fears each with its clays i must fulfill living for self or in his will only one life twill soon be past only what's done for christ will last jesus is a centerpiece not just of scripture but of our lives as well he's the one that we've been made to know and to enjoy and to follow and to trust he's the one who was and who is and who is to come. And we're going to watch a video together to that end. 